A soul not anchored in God is like a ship drifting in the night towards certain disaster. I'll ask you this today. Is your soul anchored in God? Is your soul anchored in God? This anchor is where I want to start. It's the anchor, this very sure and steadfast anchor, which grounds us in our pursuit of good work that will magnify the worth of God. When I talk about anchoring your soul in God, uh, it... In this section of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to, 1 to 6, uh, there's a lot of good work. There's a lot of uh, good things that we're called to do as Christians. But to guard us against uh, becoming moralistic and just doing it to be good people, um, there's this really clear promise at the end. As James would say, faith without works is dead. And so this section of Hebrews is all about getting active as God's church. It's the call for us to be active in our faith. It's not just believing something, it's believing and doing something with it. Um, They are antidotes to becoming selfish, to thinking that this faith is just our own between us and God, for being unfaithful to our spouse, from being adulterous, from being idolatrous lovers of money. They are firmly anchored on the promises from the God who never, ever lies. If you have your Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. A couple of weeks ago, I talked uh, about that and talked all about how active we ought to be in pursuing one another um, within the faith, the brothers and sisters in the faith. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That is pretty cool. Remember those who are in prison as, those, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honour among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you see that right at the end? You see the promise there. The promise that anchors all of these is, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. The God who never lies, the God who is present with us always, will come good on what he says. Did you hear in that first section, it says that he swore by himself because there's nothing higher to swear by. His authority, um, the, the very nature of his character in that it's pure and truth, means that he will never lie. He will never back down on his promises, ever. Not ever. He will never leave you nor forsake you. As you relentlessly show love for one another, even when there may be no love in return. When you take the risk of showing hospitality to a stranger who steals your stuff or uses you. When you take the risk of visiting men and women in prison. Or you are being mistreated by workmates or friends. God is with you as you walk in and out of that workplace, when you forgive and continue to show love because of your love for Jesus, or when you are tempted to be unfaithful in your marriage and you violently fight against the temptation, God is with you. He's your helper. As you work for your marriage, when it's dull or when there's a trial, God is with you. When you are single and you want to remain chaste until God brings the man or woman who you will one day marry, he will be with you in your singleness. And sometimes that pain that may come as you walk that road. You are not truly alone. When you're tempted to chase after money, love it, let it shape you and your identity and what, with what it can buy. And you fear that if you had to lose it all, you would quite literally lose yourself. 
You sink the anchor of your soul deep in the promises of God. You realise that if He, the God of the universe, with all measure of resources at His disposal, will never leave you, nor will He desert you and turn His back on you, you begin to love Him more than you love money. You begin to have peace rather than fear about the future, knowing that He will provide for every one of your needs. Here's what I think trusting God's promises can do. Two things, and these are, it's certainly not limited to these two things, but there's two things. Number one, I think it can give us courage to do far more than what we think we can. Trusting God's promise that he will never leave you or forsake you means that you can do far more than what you think you can or what you think uh, you're able to do. Um, often, often I hear, um, and, and even I think it myself, I think I'm incapable of doing that. I'm just not going to go near it. I'm not going to take the risk to go and do something uh, that's incredibly loving. or I'm not going to take the risk when it could mean my ego or uh, my name may be um, disfamed, if that's even a word. Uh, I think defamed, thank you. That's the word I was thinking of, defamed. I think that believing the promises of God actually helps you to go out and do things far more risky than you would have ever thought you could do yourself. John Piper puts it this way. We saw this in Hebrews 10 verse 34. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. That means people were flogging their stuff. They were taking their stuff. Here's why. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, the valley of truth concerning the infinite value of our better and eternal possession gives rise to the peak of love that risks the loss of property for the sake of prison visitation and does it joyfully. And you add to that whatever measure of hospitality, whatever measure of love that you're going to show to people, um, people who may hate you for it, uh, you could add that to that list because you have a far greater possession. Number two, I think it keeps us from becoming selfish and conceited, drifters away from God's promises toward unbelief. Hebrews 3, chapter, 12, uh, chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, says this, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a call there. And it's actually for our good that we would go and be active in our faith. If we become inactive, if we become um, isolated in our faith, we end up becoming more and more about ourselves than we do actually about God's name and God's worth being uh, spread around. This is why this whole book has been written. It's to resync the anchor of your soul so that it would be even more firmly gripped by eternal life rather than gripped in this world. If you were here last week, you would have heard Diff preach a sermon about loving money. What does that mean when you love money? It means your heart and your soul is anchored deep in what the world has. All right? This world is not going to last forever. It's not. And the money and the things that money can buy is not going to last forever. One of the conversations we had in our community group, um, towards the end of the conversation, we had some really great discussion about uh, money and how we're, how we're to view money uh, based upon what God says, um, but also what we're to do with money. And uh, ultimately, we have to keep eternity in perspective. Because if you don't, you end up spending all of your money and all of your priority with money uh, becomes about sinking it into the world. 
um, and all of these things that are going to fade away. There's one thing, I think, uh, that doesn't fade away, and that's people. People's souls, the very, the very person of who they are, that is something eternal that you get to invest in. So you spend your money based on how you get to love God, but also how you get to love people. <clears throat> you know that your soul is not anchored, perhaps when you're gripped by fear about what tomorrow brings. Perhaps when your mind is overrun with thoughts of condemnation day after day and you fight, but you struggle to break loose of those thoughts. Perhaps when you're so driven by pride that you can't see past yourself toward loving and being attentive to the needs of those around you. And your life reflects the warnings in Hebrews of drifting away from God, isolating yourself from his church, loving money, thinking of adulterous affairs or committing adulterous affairs, and the list could go on. But the writer wants to remind you, and maybe that's you this morning, maybe you feel like you're drifting, your soul is certainly not anchored, it's drifting this way and that way, and the waves come and toss and push you around. Uh, The writer wants to remind you, of the promises of the God who never lies. The God who never, ever lies says that he, will, he is with you right now. He is with you right now. He guarantees he will come through on his promises by the highest guarantee, namely himself, because he holds the highest authority in the universe. He created it. There's no one higher than him. No one more valuable than him. So when he says something, man, he says it, he means it. He's going to come through on it. And it's from here that I want to move to uh, the, the particular focus today, and that is showing hospitality to strangers. Hebrews 13.2 Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This could be easily moralistic, Right? I could stand up here and we could, um, we could have a moralistic chat about uh, being good people and being nice people and, uh, and helping the person down the road and, uh, and, and that's it. And I would do a severe um, lack to what God is actually calling people to here. It would be a severe um, mess if all I said was go and be nice to people because ultimately that's not what God requires of us. Ultimately... Our niceness and our kindness and the love that we show towards people is meant to be with his name attached to it, not our name. That's what we're going to unfold this morning. I could finish here and just say, go and buy someone a drink or a meal that you've never met before. Have your neighbour over whom you have never met and put on a meal. And we could leave it at that. It would be quite simple. But clearly it's not that simple because the writer here to the Hebrews is saying you're neglecting it. You're forgetting to show hospitality to strangers. And, uh, and, and so let's find out what it means. There could be a myriad of reasons that people sitting here today might neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Going to touch on a few that may help to rethink the way we see and treat strangers. Remember, this is not just me or the project saying that we have to do this. In our hearts, we must reconcile the truth that at whatever stage in our maturity in Christ, we have to go and do what God says in the Bible. Now, what shape that takes could be many and varied and creative, but nonetheless happening in some shape or form. So what am I talking about this morning? I'm saying that every person sitting here, uh, ultimately, the Bible says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And so it's our job to say, okay, God says to do it. Let's go and do it. Let's work out how we get to do this.
So what is hospitality? Literally, it means love of strangers. It could be uh, better put this way. The quality or disposition of receiving and treating guests and strangers in a warm, friendly, generous way. So I wonder if you were to think about hospitality in your own life, or maybe if you think about hospitality in our culture, there's a whole strand of work, a line of work, that's hospitality, right? You can uh, learn it at school. There's kids in our school who uh, learn hospitality and they learn front of house, they learn back of house, they learn cooking, they learn all sorts of stuff. Um, Interestingly, I looked up the word hospitality and just saw the images that came up on Google and they're all of these beautifully dressed people stand like like waiters and waitresses or the lobby of a big hotel um, or incredible meals laid out or um, amazing hotels. And this is probably the imagery of hospitality uh, that most people would think. As I was growing up, as I think, moving now to, to thinking about strangers, as I was growing up, I don't know about you, did you learn about stranger danger? Anybody learn about that? It's like, be careful of who you talk to. You avoid strangers, particularly older men who offer you lollies and to hop in their car, right? Don't go there, kids. And there's some wisdom to that, clearly. Uh, I wonder, though, if stranger danger is still a bit of the mentality that you have grown up with, and now as an adult, you're thinking, uh, stranger danger. I'm just not going to go make friends with strangers, all right? Uh, I'm not going to uh, go and, and put myself on the line to help a stranger. There should be some caution. I think there should be some caution when interacting with complete strangers. However, Jesus did include strangers in his list of those who, with whom Christians ought to show hospitality. So there's a, a point in Matthew 25 uh, where it talks about where Jesus is going to come back again. And at that time, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats, right? And, uh, and part of the uh, separation, one of the clear distinctions of being a sheep, of being someone who loves God and does something in God's name, was this. Um, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. This is Jesus speaking. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you look after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And so Jesus here, I think, gives a really good, clear distinction um, about... The, the strangers that we're meant to meet up with and the strangers that we're meant to look after. Um, and I, I think, I mean, ladies and girls should show caution about uh, going up to complete strangers. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about was not letting them rule over you. If you get into this situation where they're ruling over you, um, I think that could get really messy. But clearly Jesus is saying there's some really clear things. If, you need, if there's someone who needs clothes, go and clothe them. If there's someone who needs, uh, needs some health care, go and give them health care. If there's a stranger who is wandering around and they've got nowhere to stay and it's cold um, or they just have nowhere to stay, then invite them in. Uh, if they're thirsty, give them something to drink. There's some really clear things that I think help us to go, okay, there's practical ways, practical things I can look out for. Um, part of this, for me personally, part of this, um, thinking about showing hospitality to strangers just means I need to be alert and active. Um, sometimes I can just walk into shops, I can just go about my life and really have not that much care about what I'm seeing and the people that I'm talking to. Um, I, think it's, I think it's probably easier than we think if we just get our, our hearts engaged. I want to make a few observations. So hospitality, the quality or disposition of receiving and treating guests and strangers in a warm, friendly, generous way. Strangers 
they could take any shape and form, clearly. Um, show caution, uh, perhaps get advice if you're a little bit concerned. Otherwise, dive in, help strangers, be, be on the lookout. Observation number one. When the Bible calls us to show hospitality to strangers and not to neglect this, some of you kingly people will be like, sweet, we need to start a new ministry, right? We need to set up people, we need to get a, get a roster going, we need to get meals going all around the place. I don't think we need to start a new ministry. You can see throughout the book of Hebrews the strong warning of neglecting to meet together. And so the whole context of where um, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, go and love one another, is in the context of community. And the whole context of going, uh, not neglecting to show hospitality to strangers in the, is in the context of community. Some of you are going, here we go, Gilmore's on about community again. That's right, that's what I love. Um, but Hebrews 3 again, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Clearly, if you're not in community, it probably means you're isolating yourself and it isolates yourself from the world. Um, and you don't trust God that he's going to come through if you show hospitality to, to, to a stranger. Um, when they could take your stuff, when they could potentially uh, use you. In falling away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So here there is a striking connection between walking faithfully in active um, faith and doing that in deeper relationship with other Christian brothers and sisters around you. So if each of us takes on this responsibility to show hospitality to strangers, it will only be necessary to continue spurring one another on to keep trusting that God will be with you and will never forsake you. So you might go to that stranger and offer some hospitality. Or you might walk next door and offer a meal. Or you might stand behind the single mother with kids crawling both in and out of the trolley at the supermarket and offer some sort of hospitality. Offer to pay a food bill. Offer to pay uh, for a fuel card. That may help her. Uh, like you, this is, you can be as creative as you want to be. We don't need to set up a ministry if each of us bears this burden together, shoulder to shoulder. Perhaps there may be a need of a ministry in the future. Right now, I think it really healthily happens just in people going out and uh, helping each other to get the job done. Um, maybe you need some financial support. Man, we'd love to hear from you. Okay, is there any way that I can help these people? I really have a heart to help my neighbour. Uh, I really have a heart to help my um, sick family member. I don't have money to do it. Could we, could we do this together? Great. Work out how you can uh, show hospitality. Observation number two. The professional, I think, has crept into the home, making it more of a house than a home. Not sure if you watch shows like MasterChef, House Rules or My Kitchen Rules. Anybody enjoying those right now? No? <laughs> Three people. Well, I thought it would be more than that. Uh, <clears throat> hear me right. I'm talking about these shows. I'm not getting my legalism on, legalism on and jamming a bunch of shows. That's not my goal here. Um, I do want to make the observation that the idea of a simple home-cooked meal around a simple table with simple cutlery and simple flowers from the back garden I think is under pressure in our culture. Um, with shows like this, there can come an unnecessary pressure to provide restaurant chef-level meals um, when, you, when you show hospitality to anyone, let alone strangers. So there, there seems to be this real massive pressure to have an incredible home. What's the goal of house rules? House rules is we have a dodgy house and we want to have a better house and have no mortgage. All right? Is there anything wrong with that? 
Probably not, all right? But it can tend to, when it's media pushing it really hard, it can tend to change your thinking a bit to go, I've got to have an awesome house. And if I don't have an awesome house, I can't do what I really want to do and be hospitable to people. And I think you're really missing out. Um, Interestingly, in the Bible, um, if you look in Corinth, there was this whole thing going on where there was these patrons who were the very wealthy. And the patrons would actually have clients. And the clients wouldn't work. They'd work literally for their patron to show how good they were. And the patron, uh, being very wealthy, had an incredible house. The way they set up their architecture of their house meant that they had huge, big uh, entryways. They had trees lining their driveways all as a really a big thing to show social status. Um, and, uh, and these patrons would work very hard to throw really good parties and to give really good hospitality, not necessarily to help the people, but to help them and to help their social status. Um, and, and they'd have all these um, people called clients. And literally, it, it was interesting as I read up about it, these clients would literally get to their doorstep every day at dawn and they'd help their patron um, to basically say hello to the world, and, uh, and they'd wake up. Um, for the whole day, they'd be with their patron, doing whatever they can, letterbox dropping, doing whatever they can, so that their patron would have a high social standing in their society. Um, and not only that, but in politics as well. Often the patrons would become politicians who would uh, start to govern in, in the culture and govern in the society. Um, but what this did is that Paul was, was speaking to the people in Corinth uh, because that sort of attitude had crept into the church. Uh, so these people came to follow God and they came and, um, and they were like, sweet, I now have a new love for Jesus that means I need to die to myself and means I need to love other people. Um, and so they, they tried to do this, but they had their old thinking still on, Right. And so they, they would still use their nice house and um, they'd still have people around, guests around that were similar sort of social standing to them. Um, and uh, they would basically leave out the downtrodden. They'd leave out the slaves. They'd leave out the uh, lower socioeconomic sort of group. Um, and so Paul's basically telling them, this needs to be flipped on its head. All right. And so there are these really great examples of people within the Bible. Um, one was Stephanus. His, his house was uh, very well known for showing hospitality to the saints. So it was a really clear distinction. It wasn't anymore just clients and the wealthy elite. It was the saints. didn't matter where they came from. It didn't matter if they'd been a slave or if they'd been freed from being a slave. Um, it was the saints and they showed hospitality. And ultimately, um, I think this similar sort of attitude um, may have crept in in our culture. You can see that the hospitality that went on was actually more about the fear of man and the praise of man than it was about looking out for the needs of the people. All right? And so when you think about hospitality, um, I want us to steer, I'm hoping that we steer away from just the professionalism of hospitality and of what a hospitality industry uh, affects actually just what goes on in our homes. Um, the big question on every person's mind at the end of each of these shows is what will the people think of what I put on the table? You know that? It's like they go to the judges and it's like, all right, judge, I'm going to be judged here. What are people going to think? Where did I stuff up? Did I cook the meat well enough? Did I not cook it well enough? So it was, this is the only thing going on in their minds. It ultimately becomes really selfish. I think this is what this professionalizing of the home kitchen and the home can and has done. House rules is all about making over whole homes so that they feel more like a hotel. 
it can tend to limit and drive people further into their fears of other people's expectations of what they ought to provide rather than simply fulfilling the desire to love people well with what you already have. So they could creep in this thinking that if you can't put on the standard that the culture sets, you can't be hospitable, hospitable in your home. You must have a beautiful house or be an incredible chef to be able to invite a stranger or anyone for that matter into your home. And this leads to my third and final point. Observation number three. Showing hospitality is not about what you have, whether plenty or little. Because every person here is at different stages of life. Every person here has been gifted with different things, different resources. Some have plenty, some have not much. Um, Everyone's at a different point in their life, right? But the call to be hospitable and to love is the same, nonetheless. So let me unpack that for a little bit. So if you have a beautiful home and can cook an incredible meal with a pure heart that wants to serve the needs of others, or you are a poor uni student who can cook noodles and live in a one-bedroom townhouse, you can still fulfill this command. Because I don't think it's about what you have. It's about a deeper motivation to love and serve with whatever you have. So I'm not opposed, in saying all that about those shows, I don't think it's wrong that people are wealthy. I don't think it's wrong that people have big houses. I'm not saying that um, just the same way as I don't think it's wrong that people um, are poor necessarily. Um, It's what you do with what you have. I think that's the real motivation um, of what goes on here. There's a particular woman who made a great impact on in Australia. Her name was Carolyn Chisholm. I want to read a uh, bit of the story of Carolyn Chisholm. On reaching Australia in September 1838, the Chisholms found a very class-conscious society in the process of change. Do you think we're class-conscious today? I think we are, far more than what we think. Um, The convict era was nearing its end in New South Wales and a period of prosperity was giving way to the depression of the hungry 40s. Boatloads of immigrants were arriving in the colony and had to fend for themselves. Doesn't sound too different to today. Uh, Single men fared best, whilst married men with families to be fed were at a strong disadvantage. Most unfortunate were the single girls. No concern was shown for their welfare, either physical, material or moral. Mrs Chisholm was now living at Windsor and her third son Henry had been born in 1839. In 1840, Archibald, her husband, had to return to his regiment and Caroline decided to remain in Australia. This was her work. Observing that something had to be done to assist the young girls who were starving, unemployed and ready to pray for the, for the unscrupulous, Carolyn Chisholm embarked upon a work for which she was eventually to become famous. Grudgingly, the governor allowed her to use a rat-infested old barracks to house these girls. She called it a home. Interesting, isn't it? There's a difference, I think, between a house and a home. If you're only concerned, if you're only concerned with uh, what you can put on and this amazing house, most likely what people will walk away from your house remembering is a beautiful house, incredibly kept, an amazing meal. But they may not necessarily remember the home, which I think is a little bit different. Which was also a registry office and temporary shelter for girls. It was here that she could give motherly protection to the girls whilst arranging employment and suitable homes for them to go to. It is this work at the home that was portrayed on the old $5 note. 
in Australia. Employment was available in the country areas and Carol and Susan personally arranged employment and accompanied the girls to their newfound positions, travelling with them by bullock dray to distant settlements. Many of these girls married and settled in the country areas. During the years 1841 to 1844, Carol and Chisholm's work assisted the amazing total of 14,000 people. Amazing, isn't it? But notice what she had. She had a rat-infested old building. But what did she provide? What was, the, what was the thing that people walked away from her knowing? It was the love that she, cared, that she showed for these young women. Uh, clearly, she didn't have uh, very much money. I doubt she would have had money. Uh, because she had to have the governor give her a building, all right? She didn't go and buy her own building. Um, but what she did in that building meant it was a home for these young women. And so here's the invitation, I think. If people to walk into your home, um, if, you, if you're at home, I mean, everyone sitting here has a home, right? Um, if people to walk into your home and they'll walk out, what would they remember? could be a helpful question, I think, as we think about hospitality. What will they remember? A grand home is, is an amazing thing to remember. I remember I've always loved um, amazing architecture. I've always loved going to the coast and doing those cruises on the canals and seeing those incredible homes. I think they're amazing. Um, I, I think that uh, it's amazing when you have a really good meal. Uh, when you go to a restaurant, I mean, if you bring the restaurant home, why do you need to go to a restaurant anymore, right? What's so special about a restaurant? It's not, all right? There's something about a home that's meant to be, it's meant to be different. It's meant to be separate from um, what goes on in the professional sort of world. And so I wonder if people walked out of your home, they would remember the way that you loved and served each other. I wonder if people would be impacted by the way that uh, you put on a really simple meal Um, because that's what you can afford, but you showed incredibly generous love and support for them. I wonder if they walked out remembering uh, the way that you prayed for one another. Um, I wonder if they'd walk out remembering uh, the way that you slipped them $100 to go out and uh, keep living for that week. Uh, Do you get what I'm saying? So hospitality becomes far more about the way that you treat people and love people than what you have to offer and provide. All right? Maybe you get to have a really big house. God bless you with that so you can provide lots of shelter for lots of people. Or maybe you get to throw um, big church parties because you have a lot of room in your house. And I know there's people who do that here. Um, Maybe you get to take the little house that you've got and uh, you get to hold a prayer group in there once every week. Um, Maybe you've got a little house to think about working out. How can I host... Uh, people in community. How can, how can people sit around our house and just have good discussions around the Bible and, um, and around the Lord? Maybe, I mean, the list could go on. That's what you're going to be talking about in community groups this way. What are the practical outworkings of showing hospitality? Maybe it's a real risk for you. You have a great fear of having people in your home. Um, and, and it may mean that you need to consider Do you actually believe the promise that God has for you? That when you open up the doors of your home, uh, that he will provide for you and that he will be with you. Um, I think this, you consider it as a uni student, there's uni students here, there's people living on their own, um, there's people living under their parents' roof. 
just because you're living under your parents' roof doesn't mean you can't be hospitable, right? Doesn't mean you can't have friends over. Doesn't mean you can't uh, go and be pursuing relationships with those people. Another example for me has been in Fiji. That's um, really, it impacts me almost every time I go there. So I get to lead a trip to Fiji each year. Um, I have done for five years. Haven't done it now for two years. But um, I had done for five years. And the amazing thing that people walk away from Fiji is the hospitality that they provide. And what do you remember most? It's not necessarily the food because the food's not that great. You go into some villages and you get like, they, they cook up a pig and we end up eating like the fat of the pig. You don't even get to eat the nice meat, right? You get these big chunks of fat in this, uh, in this soup. Um, and so it's not necessarily the food, but it's the simplicity with which they invite you into their home. I remember getting to um, one point in the central highlands of Fiji and, um, and this village, it was called Mbotanaulu. And, uh, and in this village, they were incredibly hospitable to us. Um, obviously, having visitors for them and white visitors for them was a huge deal. Uh, but as, they, uh, as we got up to the top, we'd been travelling all day eating terrible food because um, it's all we had to eat throughout because there's no shops to stop at. Um, we, uh, we get to the end and... The first thing you see there is that uh, they've got a bunch of young dudes who are going to get all of our gear and take it up the hill for us. And it's a hill. It's a really steep hill. Um, so you have this amazing thing of hospitality, people just loving and serving and wanting to help their guests as they've arrived. Uh, then you get up to the village and, um, and you sort of go to the chief's house and he invites you in. You have to make sure you have no hats on. There's a few things that go with it, but uh, he invites you into his home and you just sit around in a circle. And he just welcomes you to the village. He's like, he opens up his home um, and, and he says, welcome, welcome to our village. Um, and he tells you where you're going to stay. And then I sat there in this home and I, had, uh, I sat there for probably two hours, two and a half hours. We had hardly any food. It was like a couple of bickies, dry Arnott's bickies and, uh, and a bit of tea. Right? Fiji is renowned for its tea. Everywhere you go, would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> Um, and, uh, and you have these cups of tea and you just sit there for hours and, and chat with, I was chatting with the chief at that time. Um, amazing hospitality. I walked away from that absolutely transformed because of the conversation that I got to have with this guy um, and because of the, um, the amazing hospitality with which he welcomed me. It wasn't necessarily the food, it was just the simpleness of uh, him welcoming, welcoming me and encouraging me in my faith. It then moves, um, I think, it then moves from having people in your home to actually going out and showing hospitality. Because not everyone necessarily, um, everyone necessarily feels comfortable doing it in their home. But it doesn't mean you don't, can't do hospitality, right? Um, maybe it's walking down the street and seeing people around who um, you, you think, man, I think they're in need. I just need to go and do something for them. So in the name of Jesus, I'm going to uh, go and love them somehow, somewhere, somehow. Um, maybe it's thinking of people in hospitals. You know where it said there back in uh, Hebrews 13, it said, because you are in the body, um, and this, there's this amazing experience that because we all have bodies, we can all empathise with one another, right? So when we're sick and when we're in pain, um, we can actually empathise with those who are sick and in pain. Maybe not to the same degree, but um, maybe it means there's people in here who um, should go and visit some people in hospital and show hospitality to them and, um, and sit beside their bed and chat. Maybe it's a five-minute conversation. Maybe there's community groups 
who can get activated that way. Um, I really hope and pray that um, I really hope and pray that we work out really practical ways to be showing hospitality to strangers. Maybe it is going to a prison. Um, I knew of a guy at uh, my previous church who um, he went in and he joined a prison ministry. So he'd go into prisons once a week or once a month or something like that. And uh, he'd just go and serve the prisoners um, and let them know that they're still people and that people still love them. Um, and so maybe that's an opportunity that uh, you go, sweet as, that sounds like a great opportunity. You think of where God has sent you. Where has God sent you right now? Where has God got you right now? How, you can, how can you show hospitality uh, in that situation? Some of you have the gift of hospitality and you ought to use it powerfully for strangers. Those who don't still have the, 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 those who don't have the gift still get to deepen the anchor of their souls in the promises of God who never lies. So when you're afraid to go and talk to the stranger um, sitting on the bench downtown, um, you remind yourself of that promise. God, you're with me. You never leave me. You never forsake me. Perhaps it could look like this. Maybe it's a one-off hospitality like I was mentioning. You're just going and seeing the person in the, um, in the shopping line and you think, geez, they need some help. And you work out a way you can help them. Maybe it's a one-off hospitality. You may never see that person again. But just like the Bible says, you may have just entertained a stranger. You may have just shown hospitality, sorry, to an angel, a messenger from God. Maybe it's short-term hospitality. Maybe it means um, you've got room in your home. Maybe it means you've got um, room uh, in your car that you can show hospitality to someone for an extended period of time. Um, So in that sense, it's a bit of short-term. Maybe your call is to uh, some sort of long-term hospitality. Showing hospitality to someone in the long term, years maybe. Um, it may be welcoming someone into your home to live with you. It may be, um, I mean, the list could go on. Be as creative as you like. I think um, it's really good, the opportunities we have to do good work like compassion and sending money overseas. But I think that's a really safe option, isn't it? It's really easy just to see money go out of your bank and you're helping someone. And that's really great. Um, But I would encourage you to go even further um, to the real face-to-face hospitality. Um, What could that look like Um, as you meet with next-door neighbours, whatever it looks like? I think it'll probably affect your budget and the way you prioritise where money goes. It will certainly help to steer clear of becoming a lover of money, right? If you think about how you use money and the warning against loving money, it's probably really good to get rid of it, all right? Um, Wisely get rid of it. Um, to help the needs of others. So maybe you could consider that. Sit down as a family, as Diff talked about last week, and work out where are we going to prioritise in our budget so that we meet the needs of others um, in real practical ways. As a good friend of mine says, Patty, get amongst it. Uh, get amongst it. it it's, um, it's a bit of that attitude. Personally, for me, uh, that's what I need to be thinking. Get amongst it. I'm at the shops, get amongst it. Who am I looking out for? Like, uh, what are my eyes doing? Am I just wandering aimlessly to the shop and getting out again? Um, get amongst it. Maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it's uh, driving down the street and seeing someone. You know when you get that urge and you're driving down and someone actually needs help? And you get the urge, you go, oh, I should really pull over here. And then you don't, you keep on driving, and you go, oh, I think I just missed an opportunity. I get that all the time. Um, and so maybe it means pulling over. 
uh, when you see someone on the side of the highway. You might be um, the only help that they receive. You know how you can fob it off and go, oh, someone, someone's already helping them. No, it'll be okay. They've got a phone. It'll, it'll be sweet. Oh, you may be the very help that they need. Go and do it in Jesus' name. I wanted to finish with this as an encouragement. So be hospitable to strangers, but don't do it as a moralist. Do it because you have your feet and your soul firmly anchored in God's promises that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. In the deepest, darkest, dirtiest places in the city, in the uh, deepest, messiest mess of lives that you interact with, he will never leave you nor forsake you. We can take great stead in that. But maybe there is some people who do show hospitality, and I know there's people here who do that. I was particularly encouraged with this um, song, um, and it's called He Giveth More Grace. So please excuse the language. Uh, It's old sort of language, but the, the message in it is really quite powerful. For those who continually show hospitality, don't give up, although it can be tiring. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labours increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only just begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting, availing. The Father, both thee and thy load, will bear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So let that be an encouragement for you today. Can I say a good word to dads and husbands? I think um, it's good for you to take leadership in this in your family. Uh, I think sometimes, maybe culturally, um, the thinking is that hospitality is for the ladies and for the women in the home. But I think um, men can equally um, bear the burden and be planning and helping how to show hospitality. Um, So dads, husbands, let me encourage you. Go home and have conversations with your wife and with your family. How can we be showing care? for the people around us and begin to lead that a little bit in your home as well. Let me pray. God, you're the God who uh, never lies. And when you say and when you promise that you are with us and that you will never leave us nor forsake us, um, then we can confidently say, God is my helper. What can man do to me? What can a stranger do to me? They may hurt me. They may take my things, but I know a God who's still with me. God, I pray that uh, out of your infinite resources that you would provide for those who are in need today and that you would use us to provide for those who are in need. And God, when we have limited resources, when the resources we've hoarded uh, begin to come to an end, God, that we would lean more heavily upon you and upon the resources that you provide whether that's strength to keep going, whether that's physical resources like money, whether that's physical resources like food or things that people need. God, help us to trust in the very deep and great promise. You are with us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. Your love has no limits, God. It goes into the furthest and deepest parts of our city. 
goes into the furthest and deepest messiness of people's lives. And I pray that we would go there too. Pray that we would be a people known for our hospitality. Pray that if there's strangers here this morning, that we would have eyes that are active and hearts that are active in pursuing those who've walked in today who are strangers to us. We don't know yet. And may our hospitality be rich. Not just what we have, but the way that we treat the people. The way that we treat the strangers with what we have. So God, um, thank you. Thank you that you've shown hospitality to us. In the kindness and the generosity of your love and grace towards us, filthy sinners. You bring people who are dead back to life. That's an amazing, amazing hospitality. So help us to go and do likewise, God. Amen.